Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1305 of the Lots on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Monday evening. It is Labor Day, September 5th. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. As always, make it your first listen every single day, the Lots on Hawks podcast across platforms. That includes YouTube and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Today's episode is actually a two-parter. Myself and Ben Ladner, friend of the podcast from the Read and React podcast, as well as the Step Back. Ben has covered the Hawks in the past as well. One of my favorite guests and one of my friends in the industry that is very, very smart that I trust across the board. We're talking about the Hawks and the Eastern Conference on this two-part episode, covering what the Hawks did in the offseason, sort of a checkup there, DeJounte Murray, the defense, the shooting, all the fun stuff, where they stuck up in the Eastern Conference, as well as some stuff from the East, how the Hawks again stack up in the East, as well as um, kind of who's at the top, the tiers that Ben might be having at this point in time, the Cavs with Donovan Mitchell, Kevin Durant sticking around Brooklyn, et cetera, et cetera. A wide-ranging conversation to kind of springboard off of the Labor Day weekend and into a new week of September is here. Training camp is less than three weeks away for the Atlanta Hawks. We are getting there rapidly, so please stay tuned for all of that fun stuff. And uh, yeah, as a reminder, part two will also be attached to this. So this is part one you're about to listen to right now or watch on YouTube, but part two it should be available at the exact same time. So please click on over to that one as well. When you're done with this one, please subscribe to the show, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, etc. And after the intro, you'll hear myself and Ben Ladner. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm joined now by my friend, Ben Ladner. Ben, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while and I try not to bug you too much, but now we're in September and training camp is nearing and I appreciate you coming back on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I uh do I still do I still hold the record for most appearances or did I ever hold that record? Am I just misremembering that? No, I think uh, I need to check this actually. You're definitely on the very short list if not number 1. Um anytime you want to just co- cover the Hawks full time again, you will be number 1 in a, in a in an instant. I can tell you that right now. But uh, I think it's either you or uh the oft uh the offsided but uh now retired Jeff Siegel who's no longer allowed to come on mm. podcasts. Uh, or maybe that's like, good company. Yeah. Maybe Glenn Willis is each inching up the ranks. Glenn is great, but he has his own podcast. I try not to bug him too much. Shouts to Kevin Chenard and the crew, but yeah, you're definitely high on the list. If not number one, you probably are number one still, if I had to guess, but I'm, I'm happy I will, to hear that. I will pledge to you to report back on that offline when I figure it out. <laughs> I probably should take this last time. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I no, actually, I, I had someone tell a friend told me the other day that a friend of theirs told them that I was quote, very good on locked on hawks wow. so uh i'm, I'm feeling feeling on top of the world we love we love that it's been a while i mean obviously you have not been on the show for probably i don't know three or four months at this point it's been a little while so uh long memories there as well which i appreciate and uh like i said i try not to bug you too much but uh i think it's was, it was probably time with training camp nearing and a lot going on in the eastern conference we're talking some hawks as well obviously with you on the show but I kind of want to zoom out a little bit first to talk about the more newsy part of this, because it kind of does play into the Hawks a little bit in that I covered this a little by myself last week, but the Donovan Mitchell trade got a lot of attention. I got a lot of questions about it, even from a Hawks standpoint, like, you know, comparing it to the Jonte Murray trade, uh, where does it stack up with the Hawks, all that stuff. I wonder what you made of that, because obviously the Cavs are better today than they were before they made that trade, but they paid a hefty price. For sure. Donovan is a guy that I've always kind of been a little bit lower on, but even I will acknowledge he's really good. He's a top you know, 30 player in the league. So what did you make of that? I guess we'll start we'll start there with, with the broad strokes of them uh, kind of adding a star for a hefty price, but kind of a, a future facing price. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, if people are watching on the video, the reason I smiled when you called him a top 30 player is because I recently did a, a top 30 players in the NBA rankings with, yeah, you did. with my friend John Sauber on our podcast. And, and John had him outside of the top 30. Um, which I, is, thought, which I, is... I thought I was low on Donovan Mitchell. Apparently, uh, John well, so did I. Lower. I had him like 17th or something. Um, yeah, I think he's really good. I think he helps the Cavs. I'm hopeful that playing with Darius Garland and Evan Mobley in particular, not to mention Jared Allen and I guess Karis Levert, if you like him, but <laughs> um, hopefully that will sort of unlock some of the off-ball stuff, you know, cutting, spotting up, um, being just more of an off-ball threat in Mitchell's game that I kind of thought he had coming out of Louisville. And I think a lot of people thought he had coming out of Louisville, but just never really accessed when he was with the jazz, partly because he was the only guy who could really handle the ball for a little while. And then by the time Mike Conley came, he was sort of entrenched in that sort of role. And he just never became the kind of like all around two way player that I always thought and still kind of do think that he could be. So hopefully playing with Garland, not only allows him to expend more energy defensively because he's conserving it on offense, but also allows him to use that offensive energy, channel that in a bit of a different way, more spot ups, because he's a really good spot up shooter. He just never really does a lot of that because of how much he handles the ball, kind of stagnant off the ball. So I hope that that will unlock new dimensions of his game, which will in turn unlock new dimensions of Darius Garland's game and Evan Mobley's game and Jared Allen's game and make that entire ecosystem a little bit stronger. So that's, that's kind of my primary, I guess, curiosity with this trade is just the extent to which, you know, that just the, the new kind of chemistry changes both Mitchell and his surrounding environment. Um, and then I'm also really curious from an Evan Mobley perspective, because to me, this trade really is a bet on him taking another leap next year and becoming, or, or maybe not even next year, but within the next two or three years and becoming like a top 15, 20, even 10 level of player in the NBA, because I think as good as the Cavs were last year, as, as much as they improved, as much fun as I had watching them last year, they were still a play-in team last year. And I don't think that in a vacuum, adding Donovan Mitchell to the exact Cavs team we saw last year pushes them into the top four, top five mix in the Eastern Conference. So I think if you make this trade and you believe that this does push you into championship contention or at least conference finals contention, you kind of have to be betting on Darius Garland taking a modest step forward, maybe Jared Allen taking a modest step forward, but mostly Evan Mobley taking a real step forward as a creator, as a, as a passer, as a defender, um, as a guy who can put the ball on the deck and create his own shot a little bit more than he showed as a shooter, someone who can space the floor a little bit more reliably and just rounding out his overall offensive game. Because without that, like unless Garland just takes like a massive leap and he becomes a Trey young level of offensive player, or Jared Allen unlocks a completely new wrinkle or something. I don't know that this is one of the four best teams in the Eastern Conference. Um, so I think it's really kind of contingent upon Mobley becoming that that player that we, I think most people thought he could be coming out of college. It's just going to have to happen a lot more quickly. Yeah, I think there's so much to get into. It's kind of, it's undeniably interesting to compare the Mitchell trade and the Murray trade um, for a number of reasons. Obviously they're similarly, you know, positional players. They're kind of similar in like where they stack up. I think uh, most people have Mitchell as a better player than Murray. I think that's something I agree with, but they're similar enough where it's not crazy on either side. And also 
these two teams were so similar last year, not in the way they played, but in their overall level. Like they finished one game apart in the standings. The Hawks beat them up in the play-in game, but like that was a one-game sample. I think the Hawks were better than the Cavs last year on paper and all that stuff. But like, it's so interesting that both these teams added these pieces without gutting the roster from last year. They both paid huge future-facing prices, obviously. The Cavs paid even more than the Hawks did with three unprotected first and and two swaps and their first rounder from this year um plus some filler that was you know the hawks filler was to get was just gallo and gallo obviously was helpful the last couple of years but was probably not gonna be on the team this year whereas the Cavs actually traded a guy in marketing who isn't great but is, is just a filler guy and colin sexton who they had under control so it's just so interesting to me on that side of things but to your point like i agree with all of what your sort of takeaways are on the mitchell trade from cleveland standpoint and i would throw in one more and that is can mitchell defend in a way that he kind of used to at least maybe could have thought to be out of college like I'm always skeptical that once a guy really kind of gives way on the end of the floor that they get it back um the the argument is that maybe he has such a smaller role because he was carrying a huge role in Utah offensively and that was probably part of why he kind of stopped defending um but he's been pretty bad as an NBA player on defense um, but in college, like he was kind of prone to be pretty good on that on the floor as, as a prospect. And I think maybe as, as a rookie, he was a little better, actually, just kind of giving more effort. Maybe you get a little yeah. bit of that back. But like that was not to do this whole thing, I promise. But that was one of the reasons why anytime the Mitchell Trey Young thing came up, I was like, nah, man, that, I don't really I don't really love that. And it's because of the defense. And l- listen, Darius Garland is not a great defender either. Let's just say that uh, right now. So I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see how it all works on that side. But like the... The, the parallels are so obvious to me and I'm kind of with you broad strokes. Like just because they added Mitchell, I think people are going to naturally think just as they do with the Hawks in some respects, like, okay, this is a good team from last year. Not a great team, but a good team from last year that adds a top 30 player in the league. Normally that's like, all right, here we go. Top four seed. But between the East being really good and like some of the questions, it's not that easy for either of these teams. It's just like kind of fascinating. me. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. If you haven't tried the Built Bar Puffs yet, you're depriving yourself of one of life's greatest joys. And guess what? There's a new flavor as well. It's delicious. That's right. Built has done it again. And that favorite is the Cookie Dough Chunk Puffs. They have a great light and chewy texture. They have real cookie dough chunks. And of course, they're covered in 100% real chocolate like all Built Bars are. All the joys of being cookie dough without the hassle of actually having to make it. Plus, it's uh, really healthy for you as well. Cookie Dough Chunk Puffs have 100 calories and they have a whopping 15 grams of protein. What's also great about Built Bar is that all the bars have collagen protein in them, which your body helps to absorb more efficiently. And they provide a ton of health benefits across the board. Eat something that tastes good and is also good for you. Go to built.com right now, snag a box for yourself or your family to be the perfect treat for you. And you're going to absolutely love the new flavor of cookie dough chunk puff. Whether you need a snack for your workout, a late night treat, or just to grab a quick bite, built this perfect protein bar and they taste better than a candy bar. I can definitely tell you that right now. Ditch the calories, ditch the fat and the sugar. Grab yourself a built bar in the process and go to built.com for the easiest way to get built bars. And when you get there, use a new promo code for this show. Keep take note of this. It is locked on 15 is the new promo code. 15% off on your order. One more time. That is promo code locked on 15, 15% off at built.com. Yeah, and that's another thing I should have mentioned as I was talking about Mobley. There's going to be a lot of weight on his and Jared Allen's and (laughs) whoever they play at the threes shoulders defensively because like you said, Garland and Mitchell, as we know them right now as defenders, is not a very good defensive backcourt. I think both those guys can be better. They can both certainly be better than than Trey Young to continue that comparison. Um, But, you know, Mitchell, like you said, it's going to have to be a pretty stark turnaround for him to get back to those 
you know, that defensive calling card that he had coming out of college, because as I think we all know by now, he was not a very good defender last year. He hasn't been a very good defender in several years. And, um, you know, you hope he gets some of that back with just with the, with the lighter sort of offensive usage. But, you know, I would not bet on that happening. I would bet on that being one of the worst defensive backcourts in basketball, which means that Allen and Mobley in particular are going to have to be at least as good as they were last year for the Cavs to have like a top 10 to 15 defense. Well, yeah, Maybe I mean, 15 is a stretch, but, you yeah. know, they, like their calling card last year was their defense. That was the thing that made them really good. I think that's what the thing that as you look forward at this team is is kind of the most promising aspect is just Mobley as your defensive centerpiece and you have Allen and like this all this rim protection it's impossible to make layups. They those guys are going to need to be at least as good in order to maintain that because they're working with even worse defensive personnel around them and you know Isaac Okoro could help but can he shoot so is like is he compromising your offense if you play him as a defensive guy? Getting Ricky Rubio could help you know, when he comes back mid season from the torn ACL, but he's going to be older. He's going to be coming off an injury. I've never really been a huge fan of his offensive game to begin with. So it could be like that kind of Okoro situation. If they're playing a lot of minutes with Kevin love, that's not helping your defense. So that's <laughs> no. even more weight on their shoulders. There's just, there's not a really great option at the a two way option at the three, which is going to either put a lot on Mitchell and Garland's shoulders to create or it's going to put a lot on Allen and Mobley's shoulders to protect the rim and clean up all of the messes that occur on the perimeter. Yeah, it was pretty gimmicky a year ago when they were playing Laurie at the three, and they're playing this like combo big as their small forward. It was just this bizarre situation, but you're right. I mean, I think in theory, and that's one of the reasons I think it's been a little bit more well-received from people that I trust um, to kind of pair those two guys, Garland and Mitchell, together defensively versus like, you know, Trey and Mitchell would have been or something like that is because of Mobley and Allen. And I get that. Um, I do think, though, I would probably be, at least right now, a touch skeptical that they could just cover that entirely because you're right. They were a top five defense last year for most of the season. This is not going to be that group. I- I'd be pretty surprised by that. I-, I mean, Mobley, I guess maybe if Mobley is actually Tim Duncan, like people kind of maybe think that he is, um, maybe that would be what it would take. But like, I guess if you put a Coro at the three with those two bigs, that's about as good as you can possibly make a situation defensively around that backcourt. And even then, I'm not sure how good that's going to be. And Coro is a quite, I mean, I've always liked Coro, but I mean, offensively, he's still kind of a zero right now. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a tough scene. If, and listen, if you're, if you're, you're playing Karis LeVert, who you mentioned, he's making $20 million and they, they trade a first round pick for him. If he's your go-to at the three, he's already small there and a bad defender there. And like, he's more comfortable on ball than off ball. Those are not things that you want with that backcourt. So I don't know They they don't have a, they don't have a five that you love. They have four guys. And we all know like that's four really good building blocks they have, but like they don't have a fifth guy. <laughs> and that, 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 that is going to matter at some point, maybe, maybe not during the regular season all the time, but uh, I mean, down the line, I like Rubio more than you do, but like he's a third guard now. And also obviously he's not big enough to play the three. So you can't put those guys together. I don't know. There's lots of questions for sure. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why Okoro is going to be one of the most interesting slash important players in the entire NBA going into next year, because if he's more than a zero offensively, like if he's a 37% catch and shoot three point shooter, that completely changes what the Cavs are as yeah. a team. Just fundamentally, like it it gives you a competent two way wing at the most important position there is arguably defensively in the playoffs. And like, if he's that guy, then you don't have to worry about it. And you do have a five that you trust and then not to mention you like you bring Kevin Love off the bench. He's still, I think, a good offensive player. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know, Levert, like 
I don't know. I don't, he doesn't seem to have a place on this team now that Mitchell's there. He's pretty superfluous, but like yeah. maybe he's your backup guard until Rubio gets back and he can just, you know, eat some innings off the bench or something. So like it, if a Coro is what he needs to be, I think you feel a lot more comfortable with where Lavert and love and those guys kind of stack up in the rotation. If a Coro isn't that guy, then all of a sudden you're asking someone like love or Lavert or Dean Wade or someone to just play a role that they may not be able to to play. And then you're kind of moving pieces around to cover, you know, like to, to, to hammer all of the groundhogs that are popping out out of or the moles, <laughs> whatever the whack-a-mole. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Um, you're doing that with, with your positions and you're trying to like cover all of these problems, but then more are arising later. So like Okoro is, is sort of a solution to all of that or could be, if he's able to shoot competently and be like the defensive force that I think he's shown flashes of being early on in his career. Yeah. And it's, it's so funny not to continue and sort of beat this into the ground. I promise I'm, I'm going to stop doing it. It's not, a, it's not a Cavs podcast, but uh, continuing the parallels between the Hawks and the Cavs, uh, you know, beyond the obvious players on the Hawks roster, the, 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 the flaming, uh, you know, sort of flashing X factors, DeAndre Hunter at the same position. Yep. And obviously another former top five pick, that's maybe been a little bit under what you would have thought to this point across the board. Now Hunter has proven more than Okoro has in terms of like overall, but defensively Okoro has been probably a little bit better than Hunter. So it's like really interesting to me. Those guys, um, you know, Hunter's a year ahead of him, so obviously a little bit more pressure on Hunter in a higher in a higher pack situation as he's trying to get paid. But the parallels are just kind of undeniable up and down this roster right now. So it's interesting to me. Obviously the Hawks don't have uh, Evan Mobley, but they have guys um, who are you know you could certainly argue like side by side. Uh, not for the future, but necessarily like in the present, like how much better, if at all, is Mobley and Allen versus John Collins, but Capella for right now today, obviously in the future, you'd rather have Mobley because Mobley is 20 or whatever he is. And he's going to be a monster, but like how much better is that? And that, is that front court than the Hawks right now? Not that much better. If at all, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I think it's marginally better, Yeah, but it's, it's like, it's not a, it's not an order of magnitude. The way that I would say it is like, if you just kind of casually ask that to someone who's like in the mode of this is this awesome foursome to, uh, th- that you're adding into. Like, I think consensus would be obviously that Mobley and Allen are like more high profile, it, but that's for me, it's because of Mobley's future, not as present. Like, yes. And I, and I love Mobley. Don't, don't get me wrong, but this is what I always happens with, especially with rookies. It's like people already have decided that he's, that he's the guy he's going to be in three years. And he's not quite that guy yet. Like he was really good last year as a rookie. He was an awesome rookie, but awesome rookies are not awesome players. <laughs> right. Like he's, he was really good last year. Like shockingly. So, um, but anyway, not to go on the rabbit well, that, hole. That's the thing. I mean, that's, I, I think that's another big part, like why I think this is sort of a, a Mobley trade or a, a trade that is about Evan Mobley, because like now that learning curve is gone. He's not going to, oh. it's, it's, it's no longer going to be, well, he's pretty good for a rookie. He's pretty good for a second year player. He needs to be really good for a starting right power forward on a playoff team. Yep. That's what he needs to be. And well, I think better than that, be. even, I mean, honestly, like, if you frame this and listen, you can certainly, it's kind of the same thing as the Hawks again, as the Hawks again, but you can frame this as like, okay, if they're truly all in for this season, which they probably shouldn't be, they had Mitchell under contract for multiple seasons. But if you view it as like a real push for right now, like that puts even more pressure to your point on Mobley yeah. and Okoro in particular, because Allen and Garland, like Garland, you think will stop, will still probably get better. He's still really young. He's as good as he was last year. Allen's probably what he is. He's really good. I can't imagine him taking another leap forward. I think he's like 25. Normally you don't have like, maybe he gets a little bit better still, but not another, not another giant leap. It's Mobley uh, as the obvious guy. And then a Coro to a lesser extent that like give them the ceiling to kind of yeah. build on everybody else. So it's, it's really kind of an interesting trade off there too. 
they're going to be so fun to watch. I I thought last year they were one of the like the five or six most inter- entertaining teams in the league, and like this year they're just going to be so interesting. I I cannot wait to watch. I'm I'll probably watch like ninety percent of the Cavs games for the first two months of the season. That tracks. Um, all right, Ben. Before we uh, get to some other things that are Hawks related, I promise Hawks fans don't panic. We're not going to do a Locked On Cavs podcast today. Shouts to Chris Manning. Uh, but before he gets all that, I work with our sponsors on the show today. All right, Ben, let us get back to some Hawk stuff here. So we sort of teased a little bit around the Murray trade. I want to get to that a little bit now. That's kind of, of course, the big ticket acquisition in the last, you know, two months now. It's been two months. It's been a long two months and a short two months. I'm not really sure how to frame that, but it's been about two months since that happened. I've covered it and given all of my thoughts. So I'm not going to say anything here. I'll, I'll tee you up. What do you make of uh, the trade and also the addition of Murray and if the fit with Trey? How, how, how do you want to discuss it? Go ahead. Uh, the, the floor is yours for DeJounte Murray because I have given all my takes at this point, I think. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure uh, I'll probably be kind of in a similar lane to you. So maybe this will be redundant. We usually are listeners. kind of similar. Not always, yeah. but usually. <laughs> um, I wish he were a better shooter. But other than that, I think the fit is pretty good. Um, like to me, the ideal guy you want to pair with Trey Young is Lonzo Ball. Like that's sort of the ultimate like back. If, if yeah, if healthy Lonzo, a, healthy Lonzo Ball. Hopefully. Yes, healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, which Lonzo. is just unfortunate that it. Anyway, um, if if it has to be a guard, if you're saying you can pick one guard, it's it's Lonzo Ball. Like that's the archetype: big, physical, defensive guard who can also shoot and be a secondary playmaker. Murray is not that. He might be a better player on balance than Lonzo Ball, just sort of on a random team who has the greater impact. But the shooting, I think, is an obvious limitation. But he does almost everything else. He defends at a super high level. He's a, a much improved and I think very solid playmaker, a guy who can you know, get into the teeth of the defense, pick defenses apart with his passing. He's not like an elite passer. He's not consistently hitting guys in the corner from the opposite side of the floor out of the pick and roll or like threading these unbelievable lob passes to roll men, but he's a, a solid primary ball handler. I think as a, as a secondary ball handler could be even better, just sort of attacking the the gaps that Trey and other guys on the Hawks create. And then of course, defensively, you know, we all know Trey's limitations and the importance of having a defensive guard next to him. That's actually one of the reasons I was high on Cam Reddish's future with the Hawks, which, uh, you know, whoops. If but, he, though, listen, I said this a number of times, if, if Cam, would buy into the role that he probably should buy into. Yeah. I, I still kind of believe it, honestly, but he's just, I, I do too. He's not, he's not, he's not, he's not there yet, obviously in terms of what he wants, but I, I do think that uh, to your point to kind of defend you, I had a similar take. Like I, I still think that cam's best NBA future is like a active defensive, smaller offensive role player. And he just doesn't want yep. to be that. Yeah. It's okay. I get, it. well, hopefully DeJounte Murray does. And, and hopefully he's like done enough already that he's proven what he can be. And he can he can come in and just sort of buy in. But that being said, I think it's also incumbent upon Trey Young to buy into a lesser role, especially offensively, and and specifically an off ball role. And I, we've been saying for years, well, you know, if Trey Young could just play off the ball, look at his catch and shoot three point numbers. He's so good as a he could be a movement shooter. Look at Steph Curry. Why doesn't he just do that? There are a number of reasons why Trey Young is not Steph Curry, but like the off ball thing is probably the biggest one. He's just not. He's not wired to play that way. He's not going to move around and run off a million screens until he gets open or until he breaks the defense. And, you know, John Collins is dunking the ball because two defenders jumped at Trey. He's he's just not that guy. And he doesn't need to be. But I think he does need to recalibrate his game just a little bit in the off-ball direction because 
even if DeJounte Murray weren't there, I think there's kind of a point of diminishing returns when you're a 40% usage guy and a 40% assist rate guy and just everything is going through you. Like, I think we saw this with Luka Doncic in the playoffs. You, you, I just don't think, unless you have prime LeBron on your team, maybe prime Harden, it's really hard to run a championship level offense through one guy. I just think you need more versatility. And so for Trey, like now that he has a guy who can actually justify taking some of those off ball or those on ball reps away from him, I think it's really incumbent upon him to play more off the ball, to come off screens, to at least just seed some of those possessions to DeJounte Murray. And if you're being optimistic about it, I think you could say, well, this is the first time Trey Young's ever played with someone who's as good as DeJounte Murray on the ball. And so in the past, it didn't make sense for Trey to give up those on ball reps because, and, and like these people aren't wrong. And I'm, I myself have been one of those people who say the Hawks have a 120 offensive rating when Trey Young's on the floor Yep, and everything's going through him. Why would you take the ball out of his hands? That doesn't make any sense. But like, I think for the, the playoff purposes, just the offensive diversity, you kind of need some of that. So now, you know, maybe they have a guy who you can say, okay, we can still have a competent offense if we run it through this guy. And, 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 you know, it doesn't have to be one guy working at one time. It can be interactive sets. You can run. I mean, I know Nate McMillan isn't the most creative offensive coach, but like <laughs> you can run plays where Trey young and Ajante Murray both touch the ball on the same play. That is possible. You can do that. They can both be threats at the same time. It just takes a little bit more buy-in from both of them to be more active cutters, to be more active shooters, um, to screen a, a little bit more regularly, things like that. So, you know, there there is a a pretty clear way in which this both those guys can be optimized playing next to each other. It's just a question of can or of, of will they do it? Are are they like do the personalities allow and, and just the way those guys are wired as as basketball players? Does do that? Does that allow for them to actually realize that? that like symbiotic potential. And then obviously like when Trey's on the bench, you run the offense through Murray. When Murray's on the bench, you run the offense through Trey. Like that, that's pretty cut and dry. It's, it's when they're on the floor, those 20 to 24 minutes per game, 25, whatever it is that they're on the floor together. How do you optimize both of those guys? And specifically for the playoffs, because again, you can run a great regular season offense through Trey young alone. I don't think there's any question about that. It's all about when you get to the playoffs how how much are you getting how far does that get you and the results are varied on that but i tend to kind of think that at a certain point you run up against a ceiling when the opponent can just say okay well we know it's going to be a pick and roll with this guy every time we can tailor our our scheme to that you know i, I think you need more threats and the hawks now have one it's just a question of how they deploy all of their threats in the best possible manner right you you checked a lot of the boxes that i i've been talking about the whole time there in that like no one, at least no one that I trust is arguing for Trey to just like not be an on-ball player anymore. I mean, there's some of that online, which I think is just hilarious, but like realizing like he's still going to have a high usage rate on the ball. He still should because he's, if not the best on-ball creator in the league in the top five, like he is incredibly good at that. Um, and like him moving off the ball more does not mean he suddenly becomes an off-ball player. Like it's a combination right. of those things. They're finding the nuance there. And listen, Murray's not as good on the ball as Trey is. He's just not. He's good on the ball. We've seen that, but he's not in the same tier as Trey Young as an on-ball creator. So like there's a mixture there. It's kind of funny, the Nate McMillan comment, because I've made the similar ones over and over again. And there is that nuance. I think also um, Murray has experience in the at the NBA level playing off the ball in a way that Trey does not. Um, 
you know, I know Trey has even said it himself that he has experience playing off the ball. It's much more at the lower levels. He's not really done that a lot in the NBA. The catch and shoot numbers are real. And that, like, I think he's going to make shots for sure. But Murray, you know, people, he was a late first round pick with injury history. He was not supposed to be this on ball guy. Like DeJounte Murray was billed as this like defensive wrecking ball, like some offensive upside for sure, but not someone who was going to be the number one option probably. And he became that, so credit to him. But like he used to play in a catch and attack closeouts kind of role in San Antonio. And I think he can get back to that a little bit more. Um, I think that's the number one thing I'd be looking to do if I was DeJounte Murray beyond like, He'll have plenty of on-ball reps when Trey sits on the bench, but the easiest thing for him to do to contribute immediately, um, because you you don't want him standing in the corner, he's not a spot-up guy like that, is just like be ready to attack tilted defenses because this is going to be the best time in his career, maybe since he played like really, really early in his career. Like he's going to have a lot of opportunities as a second side guy where like if he could, if he could just catch and go after Trey's already broken the defense down and got him in rotation, that's like open season for John, for DeJounte Murray. So that's what I'd be trying to do more than anything. I'm not sure if you agree with me, but that's, that's kind of my I'm circling that in a way that like the very broad analysis is like, OK, DeJounte on ball, Trey off ball or DeJounte like spots up. I'm looking for Trey on ball and DeJounte second side killer. That's what I want. Yep. I agree. I'm envisioning a lot of like Trey Young pick and roll, help defender comes up to prevent him from turning the corner, quick swing to DeJounte Murray, two dribbles, he's at the rim and he's either dunking or he's kicking out to a shooter or dropping it off to Capella or John Collins for a dunk or like high pick and roll, Trey Young, John Collins, either pick and pop or roll. And like DeJounte Murray cuts back door and Trey finds him, you know, instead of the roll man or something or cutting from the weak side corner and it's a lob. You know, because Murray's six, he's huge. He's six five. He's long. He's athletic. You know, we saw like some of the lobs in the Jamal Crawford pro am. Like, <laughs> like that's that's a way to unlock Dejounte. It's not necessarily going to be off the backboard every time, but like weak side cutter lobs from Trey Young. Like that that yeah. seems like a pretty good way to use him. And Trey's gonna have to figure. I wanted to ask you this too before I forget. You know, most of Trey's career, and again, we we both established that we. We acknowledge how awesome Trey is on the ball. Most of his career has been Trey with a roll man and the rest of the court is spaced out. Or maybe you have somebody in the, in the ducker spot, whether it's Capella or somebody like that. But for the most part, he's had two spot up guys with him at all times, basically. His other two guards, whether it was Herter or Bogdanovich or Hunter or even Reddish or going back further, like there was some Jeremy Lin stuff in there, Tony Snell. However you want to go on the list, like the archetype of the Hawks offense under Pierce, under McMillan even, for the most part, was Trey with shooting around him. And I think for the first time, not only do they have another guy who can, who can attack like DeJounte can, but he's not a spot-up guy. Like, And you don't want him to be. Murray is not someone who is going to bring you a ton of value getting guarded because teams are going to want him to shoot catch-and-shoot threes. Like, yep. he's not incapable of it, but if you're the defense and, it's, and that's DeJounte Murray, I think you kind of want him taking a semi-contested catch and shoot three versus a lot of other things. He's not a great shooter. So like that's an adjustment period that I'm looking for. Like I'm, I'm just, I want to know what they're going to do to attack that both schematically and also just like Murray, not just realizing that that's not his best role. I think he knows that, but just like not just spotting up in the way, like Trey's gonna have to get used to having a guy that's not just spotting up. Yeah. Well, first of all, I love the Tony Snell shout out. Uh, truly one of the most underrated players of the last 10 years, in my opinion. He still has not missed a free throw, by the way. We're we're still we're <laughs> yeah. still ongoing with Tony Stump's free throw watch. It's like three years. It's incredible. Uh, second of all, I, I think you're right. And and that raises some questions about the floor spacing. And like I could see a scenario because last year, I mean, like we said, it was heliocentric Trey Young offense with a spaced floor, and they were really good. 
I could see the offense being worse this year. I know you talked about this with Nate Duncan in the in the Hawks oh, season I, outlook. I, I did. Nate was, uh, and I, I think it was not. I had not framed it that way on my podcast at that point, but it was actually a good conversation because, yeah, I think that as much as it's going to sound crazy for a team that just added an All Star guard, like I think if you're taking better or worse on offense, and granted, it was they were number two in the league last year. It's a pretty high par, bar to say over because the if you say they're going to be better, it's like there's not much more to go. But yeah, I think you kind of have to say they're going to be worse if you had to guess one way or the yeah. other. And it doesn't mean they're going to be bad. It's just that, you know, they were so good last year and regular season. I'm glad you framed it that way too earlier on. Regular season wise, it may not be as cut and dry night to night, like opponent neutral. Like they kind of just ran the same stuff for the most part last year. Like McMillan's definitely a matchup guy and maybe some ways I don't always love, but at the end of the day, they ran a lot of trade does stuff around shooting. And that's just a lot easier, like on a Tuesday in, I don't know, in Portland than it is to like really have to think about what you're doing now with Murray. Um, yeah. Obviously the upside's higher in the playoffs. We saw the playoff issues that we that they had last year, but I'm kind of with you, like maybe a little bit worse if you had to guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, I think it's a, you know, regular season trade-off for postseason greater postseason success, I think is the way to look at it. But, you know, that gets into like, if if you're now accommodating DeJounte Murray's off ball or or I guess really just three point shooting limitations, what does that mean for someone like John Collins, who, you know, has we know has sort of uh he's still on the uh, team, man. Yeah, he's still yeah, he on the team. Of, you know, maybe grumbled about his touches before. And like I think I love John Collins. I think he's one of the best offensive big men in the NBA. But like can you involve it? This was sort of the question with Capella when Capella came too. like, can you involve John Collins in the way that is best for John Collins to be involved while still involving everyone else? Like that, that's going to be a question. And maybe Collins is relegated to more of a spot up role, more of a pick and pop role. What does it mean when Collins and Capella and Murray are on the floor together, which will happen? Cause you'd presume all of them are going to start like who gets in whose way there and how do they kind of sort that out? Who kind of takes the priority of like, well, we need to make space for this guy. So now you're going to have to do this to make that happen. You know, like the, the hierarchy there is going to be really interesting. And like the way those guys figure out what spots on the floor they can be effective and how not to step on each other's toes. That may take multiple months to figure out or at least to get like humming with, you know, so I could totally see a scenario where the Hawks are like, 10 to 15 in offense for the first couple months of the season. And then maybe they click post all-star break and they're like the best offense in the league after the all-star break. And I think as long as Trey Young's on your team, there's kind of a floor for how good you can be offensively. Like you're not going to be, I don't think outside the top 12, if you have a competent offensive roster around him, but I could see for the first few months of the season, that being a little bit of a struggle and maybe being a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe it even necessitates a trade, but like there's going to be some figuring out to do. And so if nothing else, just some early season growing pains could drag down the overall season offense. If we're talking about, are they going to be better or worse statistically on offense? Like the first two months of the season could decide the answer to that question, even if it it has nothing to do with how good they actually are by the end of the season going into the playoffs. All right, that is it for part one with myself and Ben Ladner of the Step Back and the Read and Rack podcast. If you missed this already, part two is available in your feed right now. No matter where you listen to this podcast, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. So please do not forget to click on over to that one for part two. Same conversation, a lot of fun with Ben. So please stay tuned for that. Please subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time.